You're listening to the CTK O'Fallon Podcast. Everybody, so good to be in the house of the Lord tonight. Thank you for being here, taking time out of your schedule to be here with us tonight. And uh, we're going to go to the Lord. His word tonight, look a little bit at his word, at some things and some thoughts from God's book today. And I uh, hope that this is a blessing to you. Thank you for all those that are joining us online as well. I know this weekend is Memorial Day uh, weekend. And so I know that there will be many people traveling. Thank you for those that have let us know. We'll be praying God's blessings upon you, your safety and your family during this time as well. Amen. Well, everybody said in Jesus name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here tonight, and I'm going to be aware of the time as we get started here tonight in this series. How many are enjoying this series? You are enjoying this series. All right. We had 12 voters. Is that right? 12 voters, and it was split 50-50. So I don't know. um, If you didn't get a chance to vote, uh, you can go vote real quick right now. So it doesn't mean anything, Uh, but... (laughs) Uh, it's just, it was just for fun to sort of see what people thought. Do you believe the earth is older than 10,000, younger than 10,000 years? And, uh, I can tell you this, I'm not smart enough to know that I wasn't, I haven't been around that long, so I can't really tell you, but we're not going to look tonight at what we think. That was a little bit of fun, but it really doesn't matter what we think. What matters most is what is true, what is real and what God's Word says. That's really where we're going to go tonight, and that's what we're going to look at. And so we are going to continue with our series. This is, uh, let's see, I don't know if we call it lesson or installment three in this series, which will continue until we're done. So it may take us, uh, may take us 11 weeks because we're covering 11 chapters, but today we're just getting past uh, Genesis 1-1. So... It may take us longer than that, too, and that's okay. This is very, very important, so thank you. If you, if you have not caught the previous two, um, I hope that you take some time to figure those out. I do not have a handout tonight, but we will have some things uh, on the screen. do want you to be writing some things down, taking notes here if you are able. And tonight we're going to look at creation, how, and when. Creation, how, and and when. So we're in our study, Origins, a study of beginnings. And we, we sort of set it up. We've been doing some introductory stuff. I guess you could say last week we jumped to Genesis 1-1, the three things, time, God, and creation were the three topics that are tied together intrinsically. And we looked at uh, three primary views in the world that people view this. So we would fall on the theistic view, believing that there is a God that created all this stuff without getting into that defense. We obviously come to this topic tonight already assuming and taking some assumptions, number one, that Jesus is God. So that's not what we're trying to argue here or that there is a God. We know that too. And so we're coming at that topic. So it's not a full and complete apologetics, but this is for us. So tonight we're going to jump into creation, how and when. And so this does impact our life. This impacts really everything because this is a worldview. Everybody say worldview. Worldview. 
worldview is so important. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. Thank God for your spirit. Thank God for uh, regeneration and all that stuff. But your worldview is so important, so critical. That's what determines things, decides things in our, uh, in our community, in our society, uh, in our nation at large. The worldview. What's our worldview about that? How we, how we even act about certain things. Our worldview is determined by that. And we could talk about that on a big scale. You know, uh, uh, Nazism was just not something that somebody brought up. It was a worldview. It was a predominant worldview. And it was the, uh, the intentional extermination of the Jews uh, the, was, was the product, the byproduct of an indoctrination of a particular worldview. Darwinian evolutionary, uh, evo, evo, yeah, evolutionary theory had prevailed to the context to where they believed they were trying to create a master race. They wanted to create a master race. And that was their justification for exterminating the Jews. And so how you think about things matters. And so it matters on a big level that that impacts you. I don't know if anybody's ever met anybody that was touched by the Holocaust or met a Holocaust survivor. That's one example. But more importantly, worldview impacts even down to uh, your life, your relationships, your marriage, your family, your worldview. So that's important. So we're talking about big things here. And that's okay. So creation, how and when? Well, the first thing we have to ask is what does Scripture say. What does Scripture say? So today we're going to focus on this topic of creation. Uh, generally, uh, and we could go to the first two chapters. We could say the first two chapters. But really, it's Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2 and verse 3. And then after that, he goes into the generations, talks about the Garden of Eden, and then he, he sort of repeats some things and goes back into the detail telling of the creation of woman, first marriage, and then chapter 3 gets into the temptation. But the first week, let's say the first seven days of creation are pretty much coined in that Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-3. So we're going to look at that in part today. We're going to focus on the aspect of creation next week. Lord willing, we'll come back and we'll talk about humankind. But creation, how and when. So what does the scripture say? What I think about this should not just be my opinion, should just be your opinion. What does the scripture say? Well, with what the scripture says, we have to reconcile some things. So I'm going to assume that you've already read. How many in here have read Genesis chapter one before? Some point in your life. Okay. Maybe it'd be easier to ask. Is there anybody here that has not read Genesis chapter one? Okay. It's probably an easier thing to ask. Go to, uh, let's say, Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 3. We, we, we were in 1 and 2 last few weeks. So let's jump to verse 3. Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. So we see here the establishment of a day. Second day goes on like this in verse 7, uh, or uh, verse 8, let's say, and God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And then you go to verse 13. 
and the evening and the morning were the third day, so on, so forth, you know, goes through here on each all the way down to the seventh day, finally here in Genesis chapter two and verse number three. Now we have to reconcile two things, two things. If we go to the slide, creation, how and when, there's two things that we have to reconcile. We have to reconcile in, in, our, in our modern context. We have to reconcile, number one, what we know. And the second thing we have to reconcile is what we are told, what we are told. And this is, this is important. I, I referenced it last week that Paul makes two cases why everyone is without excuse with argument to God. First is in Romans chapter 1. Creation clearly testifies the Godhead, the power of God. The second thing was in Romans chapter 2, where he makes an an appeal to conscience, that the fact that you have a conscience, the fact that you are able to judge someone else, actually is incriminating upon yourself. If you have the ability to tell when someone else is doing right or wrong, you have the ability to tell yourself is doing right and wrong, and it is your conscience that testifies Paul says that all men are without excuse because uh, um, uh, God, what's, what's the justification for morality? There is no justification if we are just some kind of byproduct of an accidental cosmic uh, uh, collision or explosion. There's no, there's no reference for a, a moral authority outside of God. And so Paul makes that case, that creation itself testifies of God and your conscience testifies of God. So even if you've never met anyone that's a believer or believed in God, you have a conscience and your moral conscience speaks to you things that are different. That, that conscience is not... Uh, that conscience does not exist in the animal world. Now, animals have learned to be kind, and, and you can have pets, and you can have these loving relationships and all that stuff with them. I, 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 I get that. But there is something different about humanity. Humanity is different than all other creatures. Now, I believe that because that's my worldview, and that's what we're talking about here. A lot of people do not believe that. They think humanity is just another creature, and they are blind, denying the fact of pure conscience, pure conscience. So um, we have to reconcile what we know, and we have to reconcile what we are told. Let me run through this real quick. What we know, what do we know tonight? What do we know that we can stand on tonight and, and, and then use this in, in context to what the scripture says about creation. Well, number one, we know, and this isn't on the screen. Number one, God is absolute. Man is not. So the first thing I know is God is absolute. Man is not. God is God. And I am not, as my pastor famously would repeat often. God is God and I am not. God is absolute and man is not. Only God is without failure. Only God is without mistake. Only God is without shortcoming. Man is not. God is infallible. We are fallible. God is infinite. We are finite. And so we have to approach this knowing that I can't know all there is to know. That's why the concept of atheism 
breaks down because to be an atheist, you have to declare, claim that there is no God. And the only way you can claim there is no God is if you have all knowledge of time, matter, and space. And if you have all knowledge of time, matter, and space, that would make you God. And so atheism breaks down. You cannot say, how can you say there is no God? Have you been everywhere? Do you see everything? Do you know everything? You can't say that. God alone knows everything. God alone sees all. God alone knows all. God is absolute and man is not. So when we approach anything like this, I don't have all of the answers. Somebody say amen. You don't have all the answers. Somebody say amen. You don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. God has all the answers. So he's absolute. Man is not. The second thing that we reconcile what we know, well, the second thing we know here tonight, I believe this is our witness, our testimony, is that we know the word of God to be true. If you don't know the word of God to be true, I encourage you to study it. I encourage, I challenge you to study. I challenge you to take God at his word. We know the word of God to be true. You say, how do you know the word of God to be true? Well, because it has never been wrong where we can test it. It has never been wrong where we can test it. So whenever God speaks in his word, now, I say where we can test it because there's places that we can't test. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can you test that? You can't test that. You weren't there. And you don't know anybody that was there. You won't find anybody that was there. God alone was there. And how do we know that he tells the truth? Because we've known him to never tell a lie. And so everywhere God's word can be proved where we can test it, we know it has been true. And I I don't, we could go into a whole series just on that right there. So we cannot doubt God's word to be wrong where we cannot test it simply because we won't accept it. We cannot doubt God's word. This is important. I want to establish this. We cannot doubt God's word to be wrong where we cannot test it simply because we refuse to accept it. We're going to get into that because this is a big topic that we talk about within Christianity. And there are people that will say, oh, I can stand on the word and I know the word is true and I know God's word is true and he's never failed and all those things. But... This is what, this is true. I can stand on this, but maybe this isn't true. Or maybe this was wrong, or maybe God didn't mean what he said over here. He meant what he said over there, but maybe he didn't mean what he said over there. Well, it's either all true or none of it's true. And so if it breaks down, then it breaks down, then none of it, then we're left with nothing to stand on. So we have to stand on the, the word of God. Um, real quick, uh, origin by logic, if we would just, and I'm not here to talk about logic and reasoning, but even within logic and reasoning, you cannot assume, you cannot come up, logic would tell you that there is 
a God? Because you would ask three questions, and those three questions, origin by logic, would lead to some form of creationism. The first question you would ask is, was there a beginning? Well, there has to be a beginning. There has to be a starting point. There can't be an infinite point forever, especially to us who are logical creatures created in a time-space universe. So there has to be a beginning. So the only, per, only thing that can be, on, be beyond time or be forever would have to be something that would be God. So matter can't be forever. Uh, uh, the second question we would ask is, okay, if there was a beginning, we know there was a beginning. The Bible says in the beginning, there was a beginning. So time starts. The second question is, was there a design? Was there a design in the universe? Is there a design in the universe? What is there a design in the universe? Well, I think every one of us would say, yes, there was a design in the universe. And I talked to you last week about the massive movement called the Intelligent Design Group. They don't claim to be theologists or, or uh, uh, in any way believe in God, but they believe that there had to be a designer because there is a design. So there has to be a designer. Uh, the Bible talks about that. Job talks about that, about the seeing eye. It talks about the hearing ear. These things didn't just happen. These things couldn't have just been created. Your eye, you're looking through an eyeball right now. You, 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 your, your brain, okay, you're looking at me through an eyeball. Anybody ever play with marbles when you were a kid? Play with marbles, okay. And you hold the marble up and you look through the marble. What do you know when you look through the marble? Does anybody remember this? When you look through the marble, what happens? Huh? Thank you. Everything is inverted. When you look through a marble, everything is inverted. So when you look through the marble, everything is inverted and you see everything upside down. So right now your vision is going through, a, through some kind of a lens. So your brain is taking your eyesight and the signal it receives. And your brain is so powerful that your brain is inverting the images that it's receiving. So when I raise my hand, I know I'm raising my hand because my, my brain is telling me I'm raising my hand, but my actual eyeball, just the tool itself, is not seeing my hand raise. It's seeing my hand from up here go down here because everything's upside down. And scientists have done tests by putting inverting lens on people, and the brain is so powerful that after seven days of an inversion lens, people's brains start to know something's wrong, and their brain flips the image. This is documented stuff. People have taken inverted lenses on a test group and their brain, you can Google this, you can find this, their brain will flip the lens, flip it so that instead of they're walking around all week and they're, they're seeing everything upside down, their brain, that's how powerful your brain is. That's incredible. That didn't just happen. There's a designer. So <laughs> where was, was there a beginning? Yes. Was there a design? Well, there is definitely a design. You don't hike out in the woods or hike out in wherever, and you walk across something, you see something scribbled on the rock. Isn't it amazing to me that the same people that are out there hiking around trying to look for signs, they see things that have order and design, and they say, this just happened. And then they walk into a cave where a three-year-old has taken a rock, so to, so to speak, and drawn something on it, and they immediately say, someone was here thousands of years ago. Okay, what was more difficult to believe it ought to automatically happen? The stick figure on a rock or the incredible thing that they dug up out of the ground that had all kinds of, of, of design? This just happened. Nobody's going to help me preach. 
I'm saying, my son could make that. In in fact, I bet a lizard could make that. And you're telling me, oh, yeah, you you see how they drew that stick figure? I bet they had this many people in their civilization, and I bet they were. And they go off and off of that little thing. They build a whole thing because there was design. But everything else just happened by accident. So the final question that we have to ask is, how did it happen? And that's the big question. How did it happen? So not only do we have to reconcile what we know, we have to reconcile what we are told. We have to reconcile what we are told. I'm not going to have enough time. I'm not going to even probably get through this part tonight, but that's okay. I've got a stack of books up here, reconciling what we are told. And these are great books here for your own library. He wrote a lot larger book, and then he wrote this nice little handy size book, which I would recommend. It's only 112 short pages, so you don't have to read the big thick book. But some good books up here that you can look at. And a lot of them are talking about these things, but I want to take just a quick summary out of this book. It's called Science and Evolution, Developing a Christian Worldview of Science and Evolution. In chapter 5 here, Darwin in the dock, he highlights some things in here, just some real quick highlights that I'm going through that they that they write, and it's written here by Nancy Piercy. Darwinism cannot deny, and I'm just giving you highlights, that all observed change is limited. So Darwin observed change, and he says, oh, well, there's a little bit of change, so there had to be a lot of change. Well, what, what they cannot deny is that any change that they ever see is limited. Neither Darwin nor anyone else has ever actually witnessed evolution occurring in conjecture It is a conjecture and exploitation going far beyond any observed fact. This is still true today. There is no observation of Darwinian evolution. There is no record observation of any change. There's microevolution and there's macroevolution. One says that there are an evolution within a species that has the ability to change. So a dog... A dog kind can breed, and and you can have all kinds of different breeds of dogs, but they still are dogs. No one has observed dogs growing wings. And the missing link still remains. In fact, it's humorous how many times they've discovered so-and-so missing links, and there was was, uh, uh, evidence that it was planted there, and it all falls down. They have to take, put it in the textbooks, they take it back out of the textbooks. Oh, that was a hoax. That was a hoax. Because it is not there. One thing they talk about in the genes here is that, in, in, well, in breeding, something that has never been observed is that gene breeding does not ever, ever, ever create new genes. And in order for evolution to take place, there has to be a creation of absolute new genes. It does not, it does not happen. Furthermore, the minor changes observed do not accumulate to create major changes the, at the principal heart, the principle at the heart of Darwinism. You go on. There's another law, and that's a law uh, uh, made by uh, Luther Burbank, the reversion to the average and He said that it's a law that keeps all living things within some or more or less fixed limitations, saying that everything as it breeds, the tendency for organism to stay true to type is so constant that it is considered a law, a law of science that keeps all living things within some more or less fixed limitations. 
And then you have the irreducible complexity, and that is that anything that is irreducibly complex cannot evolve in gradual steps, and thus its very existence refutes Darwin's theory. So you, you wouldn't survive itself. So it would go to extinction in the process of evolution just because of the irreducible complexibility. So you have all of these things here. He gives us four questions to consider. He says, have studies in animal breeding served to discredit Darwin evolutions? How do studies in gene manipulation serve to discredit Darwin evolution? How does the concept of irreducible complexity serve to discredit Darwinism in the face of so much contradictory evidence? Why do naturalistic science continue to hold on to Darwinism? This book right here, Darwin's Black Box, that's an incredible book. That was a lot of these have been marginalized. You won't find these in libraries. You won't find these in a lot of these have been marginalized in our culture today. Undeniable how bio biology confirms our intuition that life is designed. You, you probably heard me refer to this in years past. That's a great book. And then we got some others here as well. So how do we reconcile when and how with what we are told? Well, evolution teaches us that there is no God needed. Evolution is atheistic or agnostic at best. And the reality is, is that these two viewpoints, worldviews, cannot be reconciled. And this is the uncomfortable territory that a lot of Christians find themselves and they are not comfortable standing in. Because what's being promoted today? What is being promoted today? Science. We went through a pandemic. And Science, trust the science. Everything's about science. It doesn't matter. You got both sides yelling science. You got everybody. But everybody, the point is, everybody is yelling science. And what the Word of God says is this is truth and you can stand on this. And so we have purported, I, I mean, there, folks, I, I have a library full of books. I have a library full of videos. You can get on YouTube. There's all kinds of good stuff. You do not have to have a PhD to see that this stuff does not make sense. But the problem is, by the way, did I tell you that Darwin had a, Darwin's, I think one of Darwin's only degrees was a degree in biblical studies or theology. And he rejected, he rejected the premise there. There was an offense there. And so he rejected it. Well, the Bible can't mean what the Bible says. So we have to go looking for other answers. That's why I said we cannot be in, we cannot doubt the word to be wrong where we cannot test it simply because we won't accept what it says. There are people that will not accept what the Bible says. <clears throat> so they say, well, the Bible has to be wrong or the Bible has to mean something other than what it's saying. So let me go back to the first point. God is absolute. Man is not. How's this for trust the science? Every time they publish how old, somebody Google it right now. Not everybody pull out your phone, but somebody Google it for me. How old is the universe? I wish I could find a, a map of this. Charted. How many? How many? 13.8 billion years. 13.8 billion years. 13.8 billion years. You know that is changing every year. 
Because if you go back to 19, you go back to 1990 and ask how old was the universe in 1990, then go back to 1970 and say how old was the universe in 1970. What did the textbook say in the year 1900? How old the universe was then? It has never been constant. It is amended every time they get a new copyright and they publish a new textbook. So why in the world, if you're telling me it's 13 point, how much? 13.9? 13.8 billion. It's probably, that's probably an old stat. It's probably 13.9 now. You're telling, you're telling me it's, it's 13 point some billion years old. Well, you've been changing it every day. You come with a new thing. So why should I believe you right now that it's 13 billion years? Why isn't it 20 billion years? So there's no constant. So I cannot accept. And you're going to tell me the word of God that's never changed. You're not going to take that. But you're going to take man's opinions. Well, Let's go on. The next thing I want to come to is this concept of theistic evolution. Everybody say theistic evolution. That's a mouthful. So theistic evolutionists, and I have a few friends that would be theistic evolutionists. Theistic evolutionists would believe that God created the world, but God chose the process of evolution to create the world. The Pope made international use news. I think it was the previous Pope. No, it wasn't the previous Pope. It might've been two Popes previous. I can't remember. Um, but made international news by saying or claiming that it is possible that God chose the theory of evolution to create. And so we can all just get along. We can all just be one big happy family. The problem is that's not how it works because evolution is intentionally displacing God. And so when we try to embrace something, this is dangerous. When we try to embrace something that displaces God and we're trying to hold to, you're going to end up with egg on your face, so to speak, every single time. So I would ask myself this. When I'm reading the text, are we missing something? Am I missing something when I read scripture? And this is a big question. Am I missing something? So I have, as a student of the Word of God, I have ventured down, Brother Blake, I'm sure you could appreciate this, I've ventured down the path of, is theistic evolution a possibility? Is it logically a possibility? I want to know what, and I, and I hear people out. I have, have a lot of people that I admire that I, I would hear out on different viewpoints, different types of things. And what are they saying? Because now someone that dismisses Scripture, I'm pretty quick to say, okay, we're not, we're, we're not going to be on the same page. But then somebody that says, no, I believe in the Word of God being the inspired Word of God, being the infallible Word of God, then, okay, I'll hear you out. What are you saying? What am I missing? Am I missing something in the Word of God? Because here's what's true. The Word of God is true, but I, I may not be absolute. I may misread the text. I may misread something that is in here. I do not want to miss what Scripture is saying. And I don't want to read over. Anybody ever read the Bible and you read something that you've never heard before and you think, wow, is that really in there? How many times have I read through the Bible and I never saw that? Is that, that happened to me the other week. I wish I could think of what it was. It was just last week. I was reading something and I was like, there's no way that's in there. 
I was like, wow, there it is. It's in there. The second thing, not only do I not want to miss what Scripture is saying, I do not want to make Scripture say something that it doesn't. So let me admonish you to be careful when you attempt to read between the lines. So I said the Bible gives us everything there is to know, or tells us everything, sorry, the Bible does not tell us everything there is to know. It tells us everything we need to know. So I don't know these things. I'm, I'm not a scientist, by the way, either. So I don't, I don't understand all these things. But I'm going stri strictly to the Scripture. What does the Bible say? So next, let me ask this question uh, pertaining to theistic evolution. Could God have used, I want to ask an honest question here. Could God have used an evolutionary process to create? Hear the question. Could God? Could God? God can do whatever he wants to do. If God wanted to, he could. He could absolutely do it. So, all right, God's able. Doesn't take, however God does it, doesn't take anything away from me. I wasn't there, don't know anybody else that was there. So I have three questions, three questions for theistic evolutionists. Three, three questions. Number one, number one, if evolution... If the theory of evolution has not been proven, why should we impose it on Scripture? So that's the first question. If the theory of evolution, and it is still that, it is still just a theory, if it has never been proven, it's never been observed, <coughs> why should we impose it on Scripture? Because I don't want to miss what Scripture is saying, but I also don't want to make Scripture say something that it's not. So why should I impose it on Scripture? The second question is this. If God used an evolutionary process, why then, why then is Scripture silent on it? Why does Scripture not talk about the process. Not only does it not talk about the process, it says that God said, let us make man in our own image. If we go to text in, two, in chapter 2, the creation of a woman. Oh, thank you. He took one of Adam's ribs and closed up the flesh, and from there, and the rib which the Lord hath taken from man, made he a woman and brought her unto man. So God created Adam. And then he took a little tadpole and said, Adam, you're going to have to wait a long time. 
he took a rib, and the significance in that, and from that he created woman. So the text is not only silent on it, but it's contrary to it. From the dust of the ground, God formed man, and he breathed in him the breath of life. So that's the process. And the Bible says that it used the term created. He created to form and to shape. Not that he set some life being out there to sort of be subject to itself, to come to its own whims. So that's the second question. And the third question is this. This is a serious question. And the third question is this. Do you believe the Scripture to be the infallible Word of God? Do you believe the Scripture to be the infallible Word of God? The Jews believe the Scripture to be the infallible Word of God. They believe what God gave Moses was absolute. That carried all the way to the time of Christ. And when Christ is found in the synagogue at age 12, and then later on when he goes in and he reads from Isaiah and other passages where he would quote from it and other places where he was often in the synagogue, he would read from it. He was reading in the context of a people that accepted the word of Scripture to be the infallible spoken word of God. Obviously, use my men. Obviously, men uh, uh, that, that would write as the Spirit of the Lord moved upon them. So my question then is, do you believe the Word of God to be the infallible Word of God? And so here's my biggest thing. And I would say this. My biggest argument for or against anything has to come from the Word of God. I am not smart enough. I'm, I'm, not, I'm well read, perhaps, but I, I'm not... Uh, the biggest arguments for creation or against creation, I come down to this, and that is what does the Word of God say? This is for me personal. Because I can't get into all the arguments of the science, scientific aspects. So what does the Word of God say? So that's why I ask the question, do you believe the Word of God to be infallible? And here's what I believe tonight. You, you, may, never, you may not even graduate high school or go to school for that matter. But if you put your faith and trust in the Word of God, the Word of God will never lead you astray. It will never lead you wrong. And if you handle the Word of God properly, you let it say what it clearly says, and you don't add or don't fill in the blanks, and you come honestly to certain things and say, you know, there are some things I don't know. There are some things maybe I can't answer exactly how all of that was, but here is what I do know it says. And if you handle the Word of God like that, you're in good company, and you will outlast, you will outsmart any degreed person that you could ever have in this world. So let's go now to this. <clears throat> And let's see if we can get through this. If, if we have to come back and revisit it, I may, I may do a, a recap next week because I'm going to go through this pretty quick. I've only got two more pages. Old earth versus young earth. So <clears throat> we looked at creation, how and when. Now we're going to look at creation, when. Creation, when. Again, asking the question, what does the Scripture really say? Well, let's go back to verse uh, number... Five, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1 and verse 5. Now, we favor the King James Version. <clears throat> <clears throat> How 
However, I do believe that the ASV and the NASB get the translation more accurate, especially for our modern minds today, than the King James Version. And the first day, verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Verse 5, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. The Hebrew word there translated for day is the Hebrew word yom, Y-O-M, yom. It means day. And, and how it, what its definition is is determined in the context of how it's used. It means uh, a, the daylight, the daylight of the day. We talk about it day versus night. It means day in the context of a 24-hour period. <clears throat> it also means day in the context of a period of time, a segment of time. Young. Everybody say young. You speak Hebrew. I'm going to read to you here. Genesis 1, 5, out of the New American Standard Bible, <clears throat> which is <clears throat> not without some discrepancies for sure. However, it is more uh, uh, of a, of a they, they would add more because they're trying to get the definition through. So it actually has more words than the KJV trying to get the meaning across. And verse five, do we have the NASB back there? I, I doubt that we do. That's a shame. I should have thought about that before this moment. And here's what verse 5 says. Do you have the ASV? You don't have the ASV. Okay. All right. Verse 5 says this. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, comma, one day. Now, this is important. This is critical. How quick can you get the NASB up there? <laughs> do I have a credit card? Is that how we have to do it? All right, Caitlin, go take care of that. She's got it. <clears throat> um, we'll see if you can get it up there. And the evening, um, that's fine. Either one or Ryan can take care of it. And the evening... And there was evening and there was morning, comma, one day. This is significant, okay? This is huge, significant. One day. Everybody say one day. It's translated in the King James Version and almost every other version, ESV, the MEV, the LITV, the uh, MKJV, you pick your other version, and it is uh, translated first day. Because first can mean a lot of different things. It's not wrong, but it's not maybe the most accurate. There is a different word in Hebrew that would be used to mean first than there is to mean one. One. So put the second slide up there if you can. The second thing, so day is yom, but the word one is ekad. Of course, you have to sound like you're choking 
a little bit more when you say it. I can't say it right. By the way, this Sunday, you don't want to miss our own missionary aimer that's going to be here. It's going to be awesome. And we will not be able to live stream that service. I'm, I've, I, I am sorry for those that are having to travel, but it's going to be a, bl- a blessed time. I believe he's going to be speaking in Waterloo as well. And that's going to be a great Sunday. He could pronounce this correct. He, he could correct my pronunciation on this, but he caught Ikad means one, and if you'll note, it is a cardinal number one, not an ordinal number or a number of order. So here's what we have in the text. In the text, if you notice, in our KJV verse 5 says first day. Verse 8, if you have your Bible, says second day. Verse 13 says third day. We use first, second, third, fourth, fifth. Those are ordinal numbers. Those are numbers of order. If you have one, what comes next, you're going to have a second one. You're going to have a third one. You're going to have a fourth one. Y'all are laughing. What comes next? I'm glad you're paying attention. Last week they said, I look like I was so miserable, and I must have been boring, so wasn't feeling good. I'm feeling good tonight. <laughs> a cardinal number. I had never seen this before until I caught it today. And I have here, this right here is my Hebrew Bible with translation, and this is written by an excellent Hebrew scholar called Robert Alter, and I'll open it up, and here's how he translates it. This is interesting, because he translates from the Hebrew just the Old Testament, into English. And here's what he says, verse 3 is, or verse 5. The end of verse 5, he says, And it was evening, and it was morning, comma, first day. But then you go down to the footnotes, and he says, Unusually, the Hebrew uses a cardinal, not ordinal, number. So although he translates it here as first day, in the footnotes he says it shouldn't be translated first, it should be translated as the number one. Now, the, you say, okay, pastor, what in the world is the significance of that? Here's the significance. First can lend itself to a lot of different interpretations. First day of the week. We're going to look at this. Age theory Different time age theories. There's the day age theory, which believes that the days, the seven days of the week, could have been different ages. They could have been thousands of years. Each day could have represented thousands of years. There's the gap theory, which believes that there was a gap between Genesis 1-2 and Genesis 1-3. And we're not going to talk about that tonight. We won't have enough time. But the gap theory says that... uh, There was this massive expanse of time, and that accounts for the billions of years. And then God recreated, on verse 3, he recreated the heavens and the earth, and it took seven days to do that. There's the revelatory theory, which means it took seven days for God to tell Adam how he created the earth. Or it took seven days for God to tell Moses how he created the earth. I find that ironic since it's only a chapter long. There's all kinds of theories. You can come up, and then the other theory is the theistic evolution, because why evolution for it to work 
which it's never been observed to work, one of the things is it takes such an enormous amount of time. We've never been able to observe it, so it must take such a long amount of time that you cannot have God creating the earth quickly and God creating the earth recently. So these have all been honest attempts, and I have, I have great mentors in my life and tremendous friends and wonderful, wonderful Christians and apostolics that ascribe to different theories. I do not claim to be smarter than these men by any stretch of the imagination or any measure. But I do have in my hands right here one of my favorite study Bibles. This is the premier study Bible put together by several men that I know and a host of men that I, I, I know of. The premier study Bible. There's the apostolic study Bible and this. These are the two apostolic study Bibles that I know I would recommend these are great study Bibles for you to have. However, when you go to page one, actually technically it's page three in this Bible, it starts out the commentary for Genesis 1.1. This is an apostolic study Bible called the Premier Study Bible. And in Genesis chapter one, it ascribes to gap theory. And that is so dangerous. No Jewish convert in their right mind would take you seriously because the text does not allow for it. What am I saying? Genesis 1 and 5 in the NASB says, and there was evening and there was morning, comma, one day. Hey, don't worry about getting that up there. If you can't get it, don't, we'll, we'll get it up there later. Okay. One day. Robert Alter says... It unusually uses a cardinal number because what Genesis 1-5 is telling you is that that is the moment that God created the day. It's not the first day in the meaning it's the first day of the creative week. It's not the first day in the concept of this is the first day that God's telling Moses. It's not the first day in the context. It's the first day of the creation. No, it's one day in the context as this is the creation and the establishing of a day. It's the first day ever. That's what it means. It's day one. There were no days before it. That's what it's saying. Day one, no day before. In the beginning, time starts day one right here. This is day one. And what is day one? Well, on day one, what does he do? What does he do on day one? You got the box? What does he do? What does he do on day one? He creates light, illumination, light, whatever this is, energy. There's this, that's what light is. Light, light isn't stagnant, it's energy. He creates energy on day one. And you have darkness and you have light. And when light comes in, there is a blending and there is a mixture of light and darkness. What is the evening and what is the morning? It is a mixture of light and darkness. Every day that we have today 
is started and ended testifying of day one. Did anybody catch that? On day one, God created light. And there was a mixture. God establishes the day on day one. That's why the Hebrew intentionally does not use an ordinal number. It's not trying to say, okay, we're going to put the creative week in order. That's not what it's saying. It goes later because the Hebrew literally says, and the evening and the morning, one day. You know what it says about day two? It says, and the evening and the morning were the second day. The Hebrew changes and becomes ordinal after it establishes the first day. When we get to the fourth day, and I'll come back and repeat this. When we get to the fourth day, what does God do on the fourth day? Well, on the fourth day, he creates the sun to rule over the day. That's the daylight. And he creates the moon to rule over the night. And he says these, the great light and the lesser light, are going to be for signs. They're going to be for seasons. They're going to be for days, and they're going to be for years. And he says, God hath set them to rule over the day and to rule over the night. So what did God do on day four? He creates the sun and the moon. But note what he did not do. He did not create the day. He had already created the day on day one. You say, well, how is that possible that he created the day? before day one. Well, are you going to deny God? I don't know. I wasn't there. But one thing I do know is on day one, there was light. And that light was there. So we'll come back and we'll look at this. It's very important how you look at this. God set the orbit of the earth around the sun to establish a year. He set the orbit of the moon around the earth to establish a month. And he set the rotation of the earth, the revolution of the earth, the spin of the earth, to establish a day. And he said, I'm going to let the sun and the moon rule over the day and the night. I'm going to let them rule over the year. I'm going to let them rule over the seasons. But then when he gets to day seven, he says, there's nothing to denote a week. And God says, that's mine. I'm Lord over the Sabbath. And so God takes ownership over that. He says, I'll rule over this week. So every time you, you serve the Sabbath or you observe the Sabbath or they would observe that principle, it wasn't just about rest. It was about a ceasing because that was when God ceased to do his work. And it was an acknowledgement back to God that God is Lord over all these things. And in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11, when he's giving the law and he's telling them such things, he makes an an, an equivalent analogy to the creative week being a creative work week of the Jewish people. We are going to work six days and the seventh day we're going to rest because that's what God did. So we cannot in any way, the text does not allow for any other interpretation than there being a six literal creative days It cannot allow for any other interpretation than there being six literal creative days. And we'll look at that in context a little bit more when we come back this week. But it is important to pay attention to what the Word of God is saying. And everybody said amen. Amen, amen, amen. 
So we'll look at this uh, a little bit more here. We'll come back to this. And I know I spent a little bit of time with that, but I do think it is critical. I do think it is important. And we'll look at the time factor. We looked at when, but we'll look at the time factor in conclusion. We'll look at that a little bit more uh, next week and uh, try to get into how old does the Bible say that the earth is. Now, the biggest objections to this kind of thought is, well, that just does not fit what the scientists say. Okay, I'll totally take, take that. That's right. But let's ask, what do the scientists say? And if the scientists are starting off with their presupposition being an unproved theory, an unproven theory, and they're making that basis, then they are making a whole bunch of assumptions to try to discredit the Word of God. I'm going to start with my own assumption, and that's that I don't know everything, and you don't either, but God does. And I'm going to assume, amen, that God's Word means what God's Word says. And I don't think that's assumption. I think you can take that to the bank. And I think that you can know that. Stand together with me tonight. Amen. You say, Pastor, why are you taking so much time? I know I'm getting a little bit of technical uh, technicality here because I think it's important, and I think it's very critical and very important. Uh, to, to all my good friends, by the way, one of my dear friends was the managing editor of this Bible specifically, Brother Stephen Waldron, and uh, did an excellent job. This is absolutely incredible. Outside of that, you've got to get this Bible. This is a wonderful Bible for your library outside of the gap theory thing. But he doesn't believe in gap theory, um, but he was just the managing editor. He wasn't the boss, so he couldn't choose everything that goes in there. But when you talk to a Jewish person, I would not want to lose my witness and my example. When I'm talking to them about the Holy Ghost or baptism in Jesus' name or anything else, I would not want to discredit my testimony because I'm mishandling Scripture somewhere else. And so a lot of good, well-intentioned meaning. And by the way, giving latitude. Some people can believe things like that. That I have some tremendous, tremendous men in my life that have spoken in my life that, man, I would listen. They, they have been in the Word way longer than I have, and yet they would believe. So I don't say this to discredit them or sort of discard them or throw them away. But we have to have a love for the Word of God, and we have to have a desire to know what the Word says. And I have a responsibility as pastor to teach to you what I feel the Lord leads me in. Thank you, Jesus, tonight for your Word. I thank you tonight for your love. I thank you for your truth, and I thank you for your grace. And I pray, God, that in this study, as we come to it, we're not trying to be antagonistic. We're not trying to prove ourselves smarter or wiser or more illuminated than someone else. But God, we want to know your word and we want to know truth. I pray that our spirit would always remain humble and that our hearts would always remain open. And that God, we would always give you the final say and the authority in our life. Let us be honest enough, God, not only in big matters, but in things that are dear and near in our heart to admit when we don't know the answer. Let us always be true enough to turn to you, God and to have you speak into our life. We pray this tonight, God, in your mighty name. Let your Holy Ghost have your way tonight. Can we give him praise tonight? Can we just love him a little bit? God, I thank you tonight for your grace. Lord, I love you tonight, God. I love you, Lord. Thank you, God, for your mercy that reaches down and deals with us.
We praise you tonight. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And somebody said, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.